so before before we launch in, firstly, massive thank you for you, Darina, um, the kids for coming today. Just been doing fielding practice for the last, <laughs> for the last twenty minutes. Yeah, Talitha kept heading to where all the wires are plugged in. Yeah. So we may have been very quiet if she got there. <laughs> yeah, when the kids start chewing on the wires, that is a moment to be slightly concerned. Um, but massive thank you for coming. Secondly, massive congrats. I think there's going to be a photo on the screen. Here we go. This is Simon's new role, heading up Soccer Saturday. It's a major role. So why don't you give a round of applause? Because um, having followed your journey in TV, this is like a significant moment. So as a, as a mate as well, massive well done. Scary moment. This, sure this, uh, listen, I did Blue Peter for years and I did some really scary, scary stuff on that yeah. programme. Thank you for that whoop from over there. Yeah. Thank you. As someone who later will say, I grew up watching you, then I'll feel really old yet again. But th this show scared the pants off me because yeah, yeah. Jeff Stelling started it 25 years ago. He did it for 25 years, and then he's now decided to retire. And I remember reading all the articles when he retired for the second time, saying, good luck to whoever takes over. It's going to be like replacing Ferguson at United, and look what happened there. <laughs> so I was like, oh, crikey, and I did this interview process over the summer. But it's, I mean, it's, it's an amazing show to do. It's six hours. <laughs> you have a kind of meandering three hours of chat beforehand, maybe two or three live games like we had yesterday. And then at three o'clock all hell breaks loose as 70-odd games all kick off simultaneously. Yeah. I mean, it's without doubt, Pete, that it's the hardest job I've ever done in football. It's, it's impossible to get it perfect every yeah. week. You can't even get near to perfect, but it's an amazing privilege to do it. Yeah, they say anyone on the planet, you're never more than seven degrees of separation from them. But in our friendship, I'm one degree of separation from Chris Waddle, Paul Merson. I, I feel like I'm living the dream. Half the room are like, who's he talking about? Google it when you get home. Um, Paul Merson, Chris Waddle highlights, that's an afternoon sorted for you. My pleasure. Um, the third thing to say is, is we're going to talk about faith and how faith sustains us in moments of real challenge and tragedy. And I guess I want to say thank you for your voice um, because you've been unbelievably brave over a number of years now, bringing to the public arena some big conversations around grief, around mental health. You, you've been so brave, and your voice has been an incredible inspiration. And I know as a pastor, that's going to come at some cost, particularly in that online space. But I, I just want to say a massive thank you for your courage. It's been an incredible gift to the, to the church, but beyond the church, to the culture. Thank you, mate. Thank you. So, so let's talk about faith then. Like, how did faith emerge in your life? Did you grow up in a Christian family? Did it arrive later? Like, how, how did you come to faith? Well, I, I'm a bit like you. In fact, I went to, when I was at university in Birmingham, I went to Pete's dad's church in Harborn. Yeah, for a few years. Very good church. <laughs> you and Tim and the rest would have been there at the time. It was yeah. 92, 94, around about that long, long time ago. Some in here not even born at this point. <laughs> um, but I, I was a vicar's son as well. So I, I followed a similar path, and I just, I guess what I was respected about my parents is that my dad and mum never put any pressure on us that this is what we had to believe, but it was very much part of family life. Dad was a vicar, so therefore he's a Christian, mum was a Christian. Uh, I grew up going to church, and yeah, I got to that age in my teenage years when, like any teenager, you begin to question things. Ethan, my 14-year-old boy who's gone to youth, which is brilliant, knows nobody, but he's gone. Right. Um, he's at that age where, of course, he's starting to question things, and, and I did that as well, but I just had this, this real 
sense throughout all of my youth that this, this God that dad talked about from the front, this God that I heard about in Sunday school in rural Norfolk where I was growing up was real. And I had a moment when I was seven years old, which was just a remarkable, scary moment where I really felt that this God that I'd heard about was actually real. And we were, I'll, I'll tell the abridged version because it's a little bit long, but it was a Saturday morning. I was seven years of age. I had two sisters and it had just rained all Saturday. We were growing up in a, a village called Grimston in Norfolk and dad was in meetings all morning. And there was no entertainment back then. There was BBC One, BBC Two, ITV, no Channel Four, no internet, no video games, no nothing. We were bored. And in the afternoon, Dad just wanted to kind of release the tension in the house. So took us out for a walk in this, this forest near where we lived. And I was at that age where I wanted to scramble up trees. So I eventually found a one tree in this pine forest. You can't really climb pine trees, but one tree I could climb up, this kind of big yew tree. And I sat in this, the middle of these two massive trunks, and it started to rain again. Now, we were covered with the, the branches of this big tree, so we were not getting wet. And my mum said, I think we should move to the other side of the clearing across the way and get into the shelter. We, we kind of looked at her as a ridiculous mum. Dad was like, don't, Jill, don't be silly. And she said it for a second time. And again, we responded with, don't be silly, mum, that's ridiculous. We're in the shelter. And then I, I, all these years later, I was seven at the time, can still see her eyes now. as she said, no, I really believe we must move and we need to move now. And so begrudgingly, as any seven-year-old would, I got out the tree. Dad said, just do what your mum says. And across the other side of the clearing, we went. And within, I'd say, 30 seconds of making it, the sound that I can still hear now and I can still see what I saw that day, like a tornado jet coming through the forest. I looked above me and I just remember this kind of tunnel of fire above us and this huge, almighty explosion and this massive thud. And as the smoke cleared, that tree that I'd been sat in 30 seconds ago had been blown apart by ball lightning. And we ran terrified back to the car. We went home. And later that evening with some Christian friends of ours who came to my dad's church, we went back to the site of the tree and I've still got the picture at home. And my mum's friend said, what, Jill, because she told the story at this point, what made you move at that point? Because it made no sense. It was not logical. We were already sheltered. And she just said, I heard a voice. I believed it was the voice of God saying, move. And I remember years, years later, a guy called Gerald Coates, who was a very prophetic man, no longer with us, came up to me, didn't know me at all, but I'd spoken at an event. And he came up to me and just said, I've got a word for you. And he just said, when you were seven years old, something happened in your life that reminded you that this God you follow is real. I said, yeah, I nearly got killed by lightning. I didn't say it quite as, ca I didn't say it quite as casually as that. But that was the moment that some would say massive coincidence. But actually, for me, that was the moment I thought, this God I follow is actually for real. And I've had amazingly, and I'm very blessed to have had this, numerous other points in my life where similar things have happened, not quite as spectacular as that, where God's just given me a nudge or give me a tap on the shoulder and says, no, this is real. Wow, incredible story. So age of seven, you have a moment like that. You have other moments where you encounter, not just you know head knowledge, but an encounter with the living God. Let's fast forward then, because we want to talk about um, moments when faith gets tested and how faith sustains us in really challenging times. And again, you've been very honest about this story. Um, so we're going to go to 2017. When I've heard you being interviewed before, you've articulated that going into autumn 2017, like feels like a great moment, like married, like Ethan's growing up, career, you're doing really well in TV. And, and, and then, you know, something kicks in. Just talk us through that, those few months in autumn 2017. 
One of the things that if there's anyone here who, who perhaps isn't a Christian, nowhere in the Bible will you find anywhere where it promises that by having faith in God and becoming a Christian, you are promised a, an easy time. There, there is nowhere in the Bible where it does that. And so I was very aware of that. And Pete's absolutely right. Back in the autumn of 2017, six years ago, life was really good. I was married to my first wife, Gemma. Ethan was eight at the time. I was presenting Premier League football on Sky Sports at this point. So I'd, I'd reached the top of Sky after 11 or so years. And to anyone looking on in, life would have looked very, very good. I just encountered these horrendous mental health problems in that autumn. Suddenly, from a mental health perspective, everything collapsed. I went from one minute enjoying my job to next minute finding just the thought of working would fill me with this tangible, horrible, anxious, filled fear. Yeah. That led to panic attacks before going on air, led to me just distancing myself from people. For anyone who's gone through anxiety or depression or panic attacks, when you're suffering mentally, what you will tend to do is withdraw from people. I just couldn't be around people till I had to be. I'd regularly have panic attacks. I had one not so far from here at the old White Art Lane before doing a game, and it was just a horrible experience. I had another one a week later at Old Trafford ahead of a Manchester United game, and eventually I had to just come away from work for a bit to get, get myself fit again, get myself mentally strong again so I could go back into what I absolutely love doing. Yeah. But at that point, the very foundations on which your life is built, your career is built, feel like they are trembling and beginning to crumble. And in amongst that... Then Gemma, my first wife, falls ill very, very suddenly. Headaches, this pronounced fatigue that began to build and build and build. And we eventually got her checked at A&E in Reading on a, on a Monday night. And she was diagnosed in the early hours of that morning with blood cancer, but we didn't know what. So out of nowhere, your wife is being diagnosed with blood cancer. Out of nowhere, you've suddenly got these awful mental health problems that have led to you stepping away from a job you absolutely love. Yeah. And on a Tuesday, we were, we were transported in ambulance to a specialist hospital called the Churchill Hospital in Oxford. And that afternoon, she was diagnosed with a very rare but horrendously aggressive form of blood cancer called acute myeloid leukemia. And anyone in this room who's had any experience of this or knows people who've had it knows just how devastating that particular blood cancer is. And she was given a 50-50 chance of, of pulling through. So again, those foundations, whether you've got a faith or you haven't, yeah. feel like they're beginning to, to tremble even more. It feels like a kind of hurricane is blowing through and everything that felt secure and good and positive in terms of the future is suddenly, it feels like it's beginning to be blown away. Yeah. Uh, and by the Friday, she developed a, a very serious complication. This bleeding began in her head that they simply couldn't stop. So half eight that Friday morning, I'm being told, and she'd only celebrated her 40th birthday back in the May of that year. I'm being told she's got hours to live and having to make decisions about when you bring Ethan in, what do you tell him, how much do you tell him? Wow. Uh, and about quarter to six on that Friday night, nearly six years ago, at the age of 40, she has gone. So the very, very foundations on which your family life had been built, the foundations on which you felt your faith was built, feel like they have been blown apart. And that everything that represented life and represented goodness and represented hope in terms of the future feels like in that week, in that moment, in those few weeks with everything I was encountering before has just dissolved. Wow. You mentioned after that, sort of the funeral. So you're thrown into like chaos, emotional turmoil, all of that. Um, talk us through the, the funeral. You mentioned at that point, like, obviously, you let out a shout of grief and your mate Carl begins to pray. Just talk us through something of what happened then. 
I was, in, I was in, listen, anyone who's gone through loss, particularly if you've gone through traumatic grief where something has happened very rapidly, there was no time to prepare for it. Grief fires off all kinds of emotions. Grief, as anybody will know, is a very, very messy process. That's why often it is quite difficult when we're trying to support people within our friendship networks, within our families, within our church who are going through grief. It's hard because to stand alongside them means you've got to stand in the mess with them. And emotions are all over the place. I was incredibly angry at God, massively angry angry at God because my prayer on that Friday had been this please do not leave my boy motherless and God didn't answer those prayers on that day and I will never understand this side of eternity and in fact when I get to eternity I don't think I'll care anymore because it will be too good and too perfect the the worries of this world will be gone but I was angry I was angry with God and I remember the day of the funeral we had a big service at our church where we used to live in Reading and then we had um, a little ceremony at the crematorium later that day and you're right as the hearse pulled in in the, in the darkness of that December late afternoon I let out this massive scream uh, and I don't know if you heard any but Pete was talking about that peace that passes all understanding it's something we often hear in church but not often we dig below the surface and work out exactly what that means yeah. and I remember just that anger and the emotions that day just flooded out and I fell to the floor I fell into the gravel screaming no screaming no at God this cannot be happening but it is and my friend Carl just picked me up along with my friends and he he just prayed this prayer over me and my family and just said Lord I pray right now that in this place and it was a horrible place crematoriums aren't great but Reading's particularly rank (laughs) if I'm honest it offers very little in the way of hope which you kind of need at a time like this But he pulled us up and he just prayed, God, right now, I pray that your peace would descend on this man and this family. Amen. And into this horrible little room we went, very short ceremony. And everything about that room was grim. Everything about what was happening was grim. And yet I just remember this palpable, incredible peace that descended into this ghastly place. And I just remember feeling for the first time in those three weeks since everything had happened on that day, which is the kind of the full stop, but I'd actually say that's when the grieving process really begins, when the funeral comes and goes. For the briefest of moments, this incredible peace descended into that horrible room. And I remember later that evening, we were back at home, and a friend of mine was there, and his wife was there, and she doesn't really have a faith. And she came up to me that evening before they left to go back to Norfolk and just said, that, that place we were at the end was, was just horrible. But she said, she said I, I've never felt a sense of peace like I felt in those few minutes in that room just a few hours ago. And from a human perspective, we look at that and think, that's impossible. Why on earth in that place, with everything that's gone on, would you feel a sense of peace? But that's why when we hear those words said, the peace of God that passes all understanding is because God's peace that can break into situations like that goes beyond our understanding because we look at that and go, it is impossible in that situation with everything that's just happened for you to feel a sense of peace. And yet I did. And yet a friend of mine who has no faith or at least didn't at that point feels that sense of peace. It's God's peace breaking in to places of brokenness, into places of chaos, into places where we would least expect God's peace to reign. Wow. So there's a moment of peace breaking in on the worst of days. But then it isn't sort of a story of just hope, 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 hope. There's a wrestle over weeks and months and years to to live in that peace and to cling to hope. And you've also told the story of like maybe the week after that where, yeah, despair levels are high. 
and, and you go for a walk and sit by the river and th there's a moment where you're like, right, I, I need to choose life because right now I feel drowning in, in darkness. Just talk us through something of, of that experience. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the weeks afterwards, even after that moment on that day were horrendously tough uh, and there were plenty of times when I was going, where, where God are you in this? That promise that I will stand with you, that I'll walk with you through these periods just feels right now to be rather thin, if a promise at all. And holding on to your faith in times like that is incredibly, incredibly difficult. Sometimes that darkness can feel so oppressive. We can't hear God. We can't sense him being alongside us. But as we'll come on to talk about, he absolutely never left my side. But I remember a week later, just sleep had gone out the window and I just woke up very early again, didn't know what to do with myself. And as light began to break in Reading, I went down to the end of our garden. I was in my dressing gown and Wellington boots. And our garden where we used to live had the River Thames running just beyond the end of it. And there was some communal land in the farm community where we lived. And I just sat by this tree. And I just think all the emotions that I was feeling just crowded in. There was a sense of almost being suffocated by emotion, suffocated by grief, suffocated by pain, and suffocated by it, just a feeling that, that the hope had left the building. Yeah. But of course, with God, with Jesus, hope never truly leaves the building. But at that point, it felt like it did. And for the briefest of moments, I felt that that oppressive darkness that I was feeling day after day had closed into such an extent that as I leant against this tree, looking at the early morning light hitting the River Thames, I just wanted to roll in. I just wanted to go in. I didn't want to do this anymore. I didn't feel I had the energy. I didn't feel I had enough hope to get through this. Thankfully, it was only the briefest of moments. And two things happened. One is I, I saw Ethan's face very quickly, my eight-year-old boy, and I knew I just couldn't do it. I could not leave him now an orphan. He's just lost his mum. He cannot lose his dad as well. But I had this incredible experience that, again, for those who have no faith and listening might think that's just a weird, odd kind of your mind's all over the place. It was probably playing tricks on you. But I just remember for this moment looking to my left, and there's the Thames disappearing down towards Sonning and on into London eventually. I could see this figure, this figure of a man, and he was weeping. And I remember just for the briefest of moments, my eye catching his. And as he looked at me, I could see the tears in his eyes. The Jesus I follow, the story of Jesus from the Bible is the Jesus who understands grief and who understands pain, who understands loss, who promises to stand with the brokenhearted. And at that moment, I just felt so powerfully that there was... Jesus reminding me, reminding me that however tough life was right now, however tough the next few weeks and months were going to be, he was going to walk with me because that's not just his promise, he understands. He wept at the tomb of Lazarus and he knows what true darkness is because when he died on the cross for us, when he died, the lights went out completely. He experienced true separation from his father God so that we never have to truly experience absolute darkness. But my goodness, we can experience real darkness. And I felt at that moment just this kind of surge of strength. I'm not giving up on life. I'm not giving up on my boy. I'm not giving up on my faith. And I'm not giving up on the hope that one day, one day, life might be good again. And I sort of rose to my feet, walked back in my Wellington boots and dressing gown, and walked back into the house where some of my family were now getting up and pretended nothing had ever happened. Wow. In, in that journey then of almost in that moment making a decision of like, I choose life, not death. 
I've heard you articulate that there were moments where, you know, in your mind, you're like, okay, but it won't be the life that I used to have. In other words, I just need to look after Ethan now, basically crack on, get him to the point where he can stand on his own two feet, but like, it will never be truly life again. And then slowly coming to the realization that actually God doesn't offer that kind of substandard life. Just talk us through some of that. I sort of, as the weeks and months went on after the events of nearly six years ago, I just began to believe that in my head, life obviously could never be the same again. But I also believed that it was never going to be truly good again. Yeah. I, I just felt everything was going to be a kind of second-rate version of what came before, a kind of pale imitation. The best way I can describe it is a little bit like life before those events wasn't perfect. Of course it wasn't. It never is. It wasn't a perfect marriage. I wasn't the perfect father to Ethan. But it was good. Yeah. And it was like a, a colorful painting with its imperfections. But then when those events of 2017 arrived, it was like the color was drawn out of that picture. And everything now in life felt really, really black and white. The one bit of color felt Ethan. That was my color in life. But everything else felt kind of gray. And that's what I view life as going forward. Yeah, I still believed in God. I still believed he was there somewhere. But the idea that life could be good again, the idea that there could be restoration of myself, of life out of something like this, just didn't really feel tangible. Yeah. And I began to let that lie sow seed in my life, that this, this was kind of it now. Let's just get Ethan through the next few years, and then we'll see what life brings. By this point, I'd, I'd finished my career at Sky to look after Ethan. So, you know, I might get my career back on track at some point. But the God I follow is not interested in second bests. Yeah. The God I follow is interested in restoring broken lives. Yeah. The God I follow is the God who brings hope to seemingly hopeless situations. It's been a long, long journey of the last few years. But when I look back, you can see exactly where God was at work through this. At work through people who drew alongside me. We've got a mutual friend called Dan Ritchie who ended up being my best man along with Ethan at my wedding to Doreena a couple of years ago. Planting people in my lives who have walked with me through the last few years, bringing just the most amazing woman in Darina into my life a few years ago. I never expected to ever be loved by another woman again. I didn't ever expect to have the opportunity to love another woman again. I didn't ever expect to be a dad again. Some of my friends do look on and think, where are you finding the energy from? <laughs> They're in the teenage years. I've got a teenager. And myself and Darina have also got a soon-to-be one-year-old, Talitha who arrived eight weeks early, nearly a year ago. She's one on Wednesday. But God is the God of second chances. God is not the God of second bests. And I look back now on where I am now, six years on from then, and it's just an incredible story of God's faithfulness. When you're in the mire, when you're in a challenging time, when you're in a time when it feels like hope has left the building, the truth is God has never left the building. The truth is God is working behind the scenes. God is a God who's interested in detail. We don't even see at times the way God is knitting things behind the scenes, but he is. The people he's brought into my life, my wonderful wife that he's brought into my life, my wonderful Talitha and Ethan. And now, you know, Soccer Saturday, there were times when I never believed I'd truly ever work properly again. I've had years being freelance, and I'm sure there's people in this room who are freelancers as well. It's an up-and-down kind of life, work-wise. Sometimes it's great. Other times it's a little bit worrying. We think, where's the next job going to come from? But my goodness me, when I look back, God has been so incredibly faithful. And the most important thing for me, and my encouragement to you this morning, is when, when those big challenges hit, when something curveball hits you in life that you never expected, when the foundations on which your faith is built, on which your life is built, 
are hit and begin to tremble and at times begin to crumble. Even if it's by one single finger, never let go because God for sure will never, ever, ever let go of you. Amen. Amen. Because of what we've walked through culturally, COVID, post-COVID, cost of living, it feels like trauma and stories of, of trying to process just, you know, adversity. Like, we all have our stories, and yet there aren't many voices who've been brave enough to say, look, this is how dark it can get, but this is how powerful the light is. So just to say again, Simon, what a gift your voice has been in terms of your willingness to, to share the journey and point to God in the midst of it. it you know, I've been totally inspired by your example. Just to go back to then career. So career, you know, your career is building whilst a lot of this is happening, but you mentioned the panic attacks and the moments of anxiety. And, and everyone has different ways of trying to self-medicate in those moments, trying to cling on when you feel like you're losing a grip of things. Um, again, that won't be a unique story. There'll be many in the room, many people that we know and love that are in that wrestle of like, I, I just can't do this. Anxiety levels rising, despair levels rising. Just talk us through some of your story as it relates to that. And, and where, you've got, where you've encountered God in the midst of like panic, anxiety, mental health. Well, I had a, a direct experience of this only a few weeks ago. So I started Soccer Saturday at the start of the football league season, which was August the 5th this year. And the first Soccer Saturday was, it was like a, a soft entry. <laughs> it's, a, it's a shorter show. It was about four and a half hour show. There's no Premier League. Not, it's less of a program without the Premier League, but you know, it's a shorter show. So I kind of got through the first one, but, but the next show was the first week when the Premier League was back, and it's six hours. You go on air at 12 o'clock, and you come off air just before six o'clock. I'd never done six hours on air in a row with no real break apart from running to the loo and the advert break in my entire life. So it became a huge thing over the course of that week, just mentally. How was I going to do this? How does it work? How can I keep my energy levels up so that once we get to the end of the first three hours of the show, which is just essentially chat with a reference every now and again to the live games, get to three o'clock and then have enough energy for the fact that 70 plus games are all now going to kick off and you've got to keep across each and every one of them as best you can whilst chatting to guests in the studio. So just give it a picture then. You've got, you've got a few guests here. You've got like literally TVs with like, Games. Yeah, I've got, I've got five guests here. I've got a screen in front of me called the Vidi Printer, much bigger than the one you have on your screen at home, and about 20 scores on it at any one time, and always updating from the bottom. So if you don't grab a score early enough, it's gone. It's too late. It's moved on. You've got around about 20 reporters out and about, so I've got the list of where all of them are. I've got about... Doreen, don't take the mic later about this because she always takes the mic out. I have got about four voices in my ear. So, guys, we can multitask. <laughs> Amen. We Amen. can multitask. But I've got a director, I've got a producer, I've got an assistant producer, I've got an amazing woman called Carly who, who shouts out where the goals have gone in the Football League or in Scotland and says where we're going next in terms of reporters. It's enough to scare the living daylights out of you. I say it's like doing election night special every week, not once every four to five years. <laughs> So that first six-hour show became such a big thing in my mind. As the week went on, I could just feel that sense of anxiety building. I kept praying throughout the week, Lord, just take this away. I know 
I've got it. You know, our prayer throughout the whole process leading up to getting the Soccer Saturday job, because I wasn't sure it was for me. I felt, actually, this is too big. Replacing the man who's come before is just too big an ask. Good luck to someone else. But the prayer was simply this. God, if it's not from you, if it's not for me, please close the door. He never closed the door. The door kept on opening, and I find myself in there. So I kept reminding myself of God's faithfulness. But as Dorina will tell you, on that Saturday morning, I barely slept a wink on the Friday night. It just felt like 2017 again. Everything's becoming too big. The anxiety is back tenfold. I got up that morning, and the first thing I did, I realized this is quite a vulnerable thing to say, is I just cried on the end of the bed. I just wept. I said to myself, I said, I cannot do this. Dorina had gone to sleep downstairs because I was just so restless throughout the night. And I just walked into the lounge. Where I, I kind of stumbled into the lounge. I said, I can't do it. She says, you can. I said, I can't. And we prayed together. I sat with her sister, who's a clinical psychologist, who happened to be staying the night. She taught me through a few things. <laughs> that's provision right there. Yeah, that's, that's God's provision right there. There was Dorone right in the room. For a quick chat, but I remember going to work, and despite all that, I can just feel this anxiety. I just think, I don't know how I'm going to do this, but something in me saying, you can. And I remember sitting in my dressing room around about an hour before we went on air, and I just sank to my knees, and I opened my hands and said, God, I know that when we prayed, whether this was the right thing or not, you never shut the door. You've not brought me this far for me now to make an absolute mess of this and have a meltdown on air and be in the papers tomorrow for all the wrong reasons. So God, I trust you. God, I trust you that when I open my gob at 12 o'clock this afternoon, everything as far as is possible with that show will make some kind of sense. And like in 2017, like I had a little bit when I went back to doing some live Premier League football with Amazon, three years ago and I had some terrible anxiety at the start of that as well. God was faithful because when that moment came, when the director in my ear said, we're on air in 30 seconds, 10 seconds, we're on air. Everything was okay. And everything I was feeling before just evaporated. And I'm thankful to say that since that day, yeah, I still get nervous, but healthy nerves ahead of a big shot like that is important because it keeps you sharp. It keeps you on your game. But that has thankfully gone. And it was just God, I think, saying, you know, Lean on me. Yeah. I've brought you this far. I've brought you through the last years. I've been faithful to you through your darkest times, times when you wanted to let go. I've now brought you into a new season. Amazing things happening with your family and now a new opportunity with your job. Do you think I'm going to leave you hanging in this? Lean into me. Lean into me. And so I always pray. I did this before doing games as well. I shut my eyes and I did it yesterday. I'm thinking, what are they thinking in the gallery? Because they can see all the cameras. They can see my single shot camera, as we call it. And 30 seconds before we went on air, I just shut my eyes and said a quick 10 second prayer. And that is, God, you go before me. God, just help me today to do this job to the best of my ability. Amen. Amazing. Amazing. Final question then, because I think we've heard just the extraordinary difference faith has made. Like in the toughest of circumstances and when life's great, how do you minister hope to people? Because you work in a high-pressurized environment where that level of anxiety, probably burnout, um, panic, I'm, I'm guessing that's pretty normative in some of the environments you operate in, probably not talked about loads. How do you actually offer hope to those that you're around when you can see, okay, they're walking through grief? wow, the pressure's getting too much, their mental health has taken a dive. Like, what are some of the lessons you've learned that you can now offer to, to those around you? 
One of the most powerful things to hold on to when we go through tough things in life, if it is a, a battle with our mental health, if it's maybe the loss of identity that's come out of the loss of a job, maybe the loss of a relationship, or the loss of someone we love physically gone, we fear we're the only ones dealing with this. Yeah. That fear of being alone in situations like that can be absolutely crippling. The messages I get most regularly when I ever say anything publicly about mental health battles or imposter syndrome or about grief, it's that wanting to know when I get those messages from people that they're not alone with this. Yeah. They're not alone because the fear is when you are going through something like I was going through six or seven weeks ago on that Saturday morning, you think you're the only one who's ever experienced this. And the way in which I try to offer hope is just being open and honest. Now, some people don't like it. Some people just come back to me on, on, on social media and say, just, you don't need to say all this. Just, just do what you do. But I feel a sense in which I want to offer a sense of hope to other people because the really interesting thing is, I, I've talked about imposter syndrome. From a spiritual point of view, I don't believe it is imposter syndrome. It's called devil syndrome. Yeah. It's the devil getting in your ear and saying you're not good enough. Yeah. You can't do this job. You're not a very good dad. You're not a very good mom. You're not a very good sister, brother, friend, or whatever it might be. The devil loves to sow lies into us all the time until we're not good enough. As a society, as a nation, we call it imposter syndrome. I now call it something different. But obviously, when I'm talking publicly, I'll call it imposter syndrome. Just to keep, <laughs> just to keep the general public on side. <laughs> the amazing thing is, though, I spoke about this the other week because obviously following Jeff Stelling, yeah. devil syndrome was really loud in my ear. You will never be him. You can't yeah. be him. And no, I can't. I can't. He was a one-off, but we're all one-offs. Yeah. But the amount of messages I had from other people within the media, very well-known people, if I said their names now, you would recognize immediately, all saying the same thing. I've suffered and I still struggle with this each and every time I try and do my job. And it's really powerful when they hear from people talking about something that they're going through. So when someone opens their mouth and speaks honestly about grief, for those going through loss, that is comforting. And it's also empowering because it says, yeah, this is horrendous. This is hard. This is going to be one of the most challenging things you're going to go through. But others have walked it. Others have come through it and found life again. And you can too. When it comes to mental health problems, breakdowns in relationships, whatever it might be, I just want to offer hope because the God I follow is in the business of hope. Amen. He is in the business of restoring lives. He's in the business of rebuilding lives. I call it restoration out of wreckage when it comes yeah. to my story. It felt six years ago like everything had been blown apart. Yeah. Like everything was an absolute wreck. I was a wreck emotionally. I was a wreck in terms of abusing alcohol as my kind of comfort to deal with what I was going through. And I'm Delighted to say and proud to say I've been sober for 20 months now. Amazing. Hence the tattoo. There we go. But that's, I mean, that's another story. But, but that's the most powerful thing you can ever do is, is offer people hope. Yeah. It's offer people hope. And the more people talk about this, the more people understand they're not alone and the more hope begins to thrive. But from a Christian point of view, we have the ultimate hope. We have the ultimate hope, which is the story of Jesus, the God that we follow. And that's all I've tried to do. That's all I've tried to do is because that's what each and every message I ever get, particularly when it comes to grief, what they want to know is how can I find hope again? How can I find hope again? And if just by opening my mouth every now and again, writing a post every now and again, gives them a pathway to hope, but ultimately a pathway to the true hope, yeah. which is Jesus Christ, 
that I'm doing something. Come on. Why don't we give Simon a huge round of applause? Thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs>